And this morning, we come to Matthew 27, and we're going to be focused on verses uh, 57 through uh, 66. So Matthew 27, beginning at verse 57, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself has also become... Uh, who himself had, had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last dis, uh, deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His word. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we again praise you and thank you for the great honor we have to come into your presence and to come and open your word. And we pray that as we do so, that your spirit would go forth in the proclamation of your word and that as it does, that it would find within our own hearts that rich and fertile soil which brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We ask for your blessing now upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But around 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus, our Savior, died on a cross. With his own life, giving his own life, he paid the penalty for our sins. He brought peace and reconciliation between God and sinner. He removed eternal condemnation and wrath from us all while enduring a most painful and shameful death. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was dead. So what happens next? Well, hopefully you know the gospel well enough to know the glorious good news that is to come, that on the third day after his death, that he would rise again. But before that great event, we want to consider what transpired in those intervening days. And though uh, the gospel accounts really don't have a whole lot of information uh, about what happened between Jesus' death and his resurrection, uh, what is given is important and encouraging for us who believe. As we'll see in our passage this morning, the burial of Jesus confirms that Jesus was truly dead. And this not only guaranteeing um, 
what it was that Jesus had accomplished for us on the cross, but also really laying the foundation, the groundwork for the historical fact of his glorious resurrection from the dead on the third day. But we also want to consider the disciples and, and those who believed in Jesus as their Savior and their Messiah. Because for many of them, and especially here we think of the twelve, we don't hear anything. We don't know what they were doing during this time. And so we can only imagine that after they scattered at his, after his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, that they would have now heard the news about his death on this Friday afternoon. And they were likely dismayed with their hopes and dreams seemingly dashed. And perhaps some even wondered whether it was all in vain. Is what they had given up in the last, the previous three years when they gave up everything to follow Jesus. But again, in our passage this morning, we see that there were some followers who, despite these doubts, stepped out in faith, clinging even to the slightest hope of God's promises, even though it perhaps didn't turn out the way they thought. And so as we consider the account of the burial of Jesus, we see the faith of others unburied and bearing great fruit for the Lord's glory. Verse 57, When evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. So again, Jesus died around 3 o'clock in the afternoon and likely hung on the cross for, for some time until the soldiers confirmed his death by piercing his side, as John records in his gospel account. And Matthew tells us that evening had come, and this would be early evening between 3 to 6 p.m., right? So the kind of the twilight time of the day. And of course, the Romans... <clears throat> Well, they weren't concerned so much with the time. They would have left a body remaining on the cross. They often did this for left it for several days as a further a warning and a cruelty, uh, showing to the people of the severity of their judgment against uh, crime. Right? If they commit a crime, we're going to leave you hanging on the cross for days. But the Jews, of course, had much more reverence for the body of the dead. In fact, time was pressing. And the body of the dead needed to be removed before sundown, that off the uh, off the cross. And this was what the law required. In Deuteronomy 21, we read this, and this is about someone who who uh, is hung from a tree and dies hanging on a tree. Which, uh, again, even in our reading from Acts this morning, uh, we see the cross referred to as as a tree. Deuteronomy 21, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. And we've already looked at at how the crucifixion was the curse of God because Jesus bore God's wrath and curse for our sin. Well, there was even more urgency, not just this law, But this was the day of preparation. That is, it was the day before the Sabbath, uh, in which the the Jews needed to be busy getting all that they would need before uh, the Sabbath day would come, because everything would be shut down and they weren't able to do any work. 
And so Friday afternoons were a busy time. There was much to be done. And here there was a body or bodies that needed to be buried. And of course, there was very little time to get it all accomplished before the start of the Sabbath at sundown. But who was going to do it? All the disciples, remember, had had scattered the night before and, and they hadn't been seen since. Except, of course, for John. Uh, we gleaned from John's account that John was there uh, at the cross. But in his gospel account, he also records the charge that Jesus gave to him to care for his mother Mary. And it's likely that he had already now left uh, that, uh, that area, left Golgotha, uh, to take Mary back to his house. And so John wasn't there to do it or any of the other disciples. And again, as we mentioned, certainly the Romans weren't going to do it. And it's likely that even though it was the requirement of the law, the religious leaders who so hated Jesus, well, they weren't going to concern themselves with it either. Besides, they likely had left also to go back into the city, to the temple, for the evening sacrifices, because it was now about that same time as well. And so who would see to the burial of Jesus without any family, any friends, or even enemies to do the job? Well, then enters Joseph of Arimathea. And this we have the first and only time that we read of Joseph of Arimathea in the scriptures is in connection with the burial of Jesus and his act of kindness to see that the Lord's body is given a proper burial. But what's also unique about Joseph is that his deed here is mentioned in all four gospel accounts. And each of those gospel accounts, if you pull them all together, they each give a little bit uh, different uh, information about who this Joseph of Arimathea was. He was a disciple of Jesus, as Matthew tells us here. But John tells us that he was a secret disciple. That is, he had concealed his faith for fear of the Jews. Now, why would he conceal his faith? What was he afraid of? Well, Mark and Luke both say that this Joseph was a member of the council. Indeed, Mark says that he was a prominent member of the council. And so Joseph was actually a member of the Sanhedrin, the same council that sought to condemn and destroy Jesus. And we see here that now one of its members had stepped out in faith in an act of mercy to obtain the body of Jesus for proper burial. Now Luke assures us in his account that Joseph was a good and righteous man and that he had not consented to the council's plan and action regarding Jesus. Now, we don't know, we're not told if he was absent uh, during the time of the trial, or maybe he was there, but for whatever reason, he remained silent. Either way, we know that he was against what had taken place. Well, finally, both Mark and Luke record that Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. And this is a similar description given to Simeon and, and Anna uh, at the time of Jesus' birth in, uh, in Luke chapter 2 and 3. And they were looking for the consolation of Israel. And God had promised Simeon that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
That is the anointed one. And so that fact that Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God tells us that he was a very devout Jew, unlike many of his fellow Sanhedrin members who were just simply self-serving hypocrites. And the amazing thing is, again, that at some point, he had come to believe in Jesus. And he saw in Jesus, just as Simeon had seen many years before, he had seen in Jesus the fulfillment of God's promise that his kingdom would now come because the Messiah had come. Believing not in a political deliverance, as many had done, but in the deliverance of the soul from the bonds of sin. Joseph was waiting, and this continually waiting, perhaps even anxiously and eagerly awaiting, the time when God will once again rule in the hearts of His people, Israel. And when He had come across Jesus, He knew that Jesus was truly the one to bring that about. But again, we never hear of Joseph until this time. Why is that? And why didn't he protest the actions of the Sanhedrin? Why, why didn't he speak up? Well, the simple answer is that he was overcome with fear. Because any slight openness or sympathy toward Jesus was grounds, would have been grounds for dismissal and even excommunication from the synagogue. Consider what we read in John 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in Him. So there were other members of the religious leaders and of the Sanhedrin who had believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And so Joseph, along with others like Nicodemus, who came to Jesus under the cover of night, had believed in Jesus, but didn't publicly profess him for fear that they might be thrown out of the synagogue. And, and for some, it was also a fear of losing approval in the sight of men rather than standing boldly approved in the sight of God. And so Joseph was believing and yet not confessing. Well, we remember Jesus' words that if we confess him before men, that he will confess us before the Father in heaven. But if we deny him before men, then he will deny us before the Father. And so it's necessary for us, obviously, to believe in Jesus. But we also must confess him before men. And there are many people today who by God's grace have come to believe in Christ, but because of fear, they may not publicly confess Him. And this even in places where there is little to no uh, persecution. We might be able to understand it in a place like, uh, like China or uh, North Korea where people are going to be persecuted if they're openly, publicly professing their faith, although many of the reports that we hear often is they're not shy. The believers in those places are not shy about proclaiming their faith. But there are many who, even here, who believe and yet out of fear for what others may think, 
they do not publicly profess. Friends, I know because this was me. When I became a believer at 13, I too was a secret disciple. And for fear of what my family and, and friends would think, I, I kept it all undercover. Yes, I read my Bible and I sought to live as a Christian life and, and kind of do what Christians do. But I, like Joseph, was silent and never confessed Christ before men. And it didn't change until one of my brothers also came to know Christ. And then he said to me, hey, you need to be thinking about, you know, this faith and, and Jesus. And I was embarrassed because I told him, well, I already have. And then falling under the conviction of that sin, I then confessed that sin and then publicly professed Christ. And perhaps some of you have done something similar. It's not popular today to have other people, for people to know that you're a believer, you're a Christian. As our world and our society can increasingly gets hostile to the Christian faith and to uh, God's people. And so we may cower and we may seek to hide our faith and cover it up. But the scriptures challenge us and Christ himself calls us to publicly profess him if we truly believe in him. And of course, this is exactly what we do when we join the church. Right? We make a public profession of faith. A vow seven of our covenant of communicate uh, church membership, which is made publicly before the session and then also the congregation, is this. Do you make this profession of faith and purpose in the presence of God in humble reliance upon His grace as you desire to give your account with joy at the last great day? And so God calls us not only to believe, but to confess Him before men publicly to confess our faith in Christ. Now this doesn't mean that we do this just once, that we uh, join the church and we confess Christ once and then we never have to do it again. But no, we're to continually confess Christ. And again, many Christians struggle with this as well as we we're speaking about. We're, we're in a conversation and, and someone says something and, and there's maybe an opportunity there, an opportunity um, to confess Christ and to share the gospel or uh, to bring in, in love, to bring correction or rebuke or even to bring some kind of words of encouragement from the scriptures. And yet we choose to stand, stand silent for fear of causing a scene or maybe losing our friendship with the one whom we're with. Friends, are we... There are a few simple words so hard to say. Why are we so fearful? Shouldn't the cross of Christ give us the boldness and the courage? Indeed it should. And this is exactly what Joseph found here to overcome his fear. Seeing Christ dead on the cross, he knew that something must be done. And he was going to do it regardless of what it may cost him. But he would need courage and strength because by his action, he would be making a very loud and decisive proclamation that he was a disciple of Jesus. He would be publicly declaring his allegiance to Christ, 
not only before Pilate and the civil authorities, but also before the members of the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders. He was ready to bear the cost that would come. And so he goes before Pilate seeking the body of Jesus that he could do the honorable thing and bury the body of the Lord. Now we remember Pilate was very cruel and he certainly had no love for the Jews. And even though he knew Jesus was innocent and that it was because of envy that the Jews had brought false charges against him, he still consented to Jesus' death. Even after his wife had these bad dreams in regards to Jesus and urged him to have nothing to do with this man, he pressed on. But for all his bullying and big talk, Pilate, we later discover, is just spineless. In contrast to Joseph here, Pilate showed no courage and he caved in to the wishes of the mob and knowingly condemned an innocent man to death. And as washing his hands only cleaned the dirt from his hands, it certainly did not clean him from the responsibility of the sin of putting Jesus to death. And we see that confirmed in the book of Acts. Well, as Joseph now approaches Pilate for the body of Jesus, it's Mark who tells us that Pilate was actually amazed that Jesus was already dead. Because you see, many times those who were crucified would maybe last for a couple of days or eventually, as we see, had happened with um, the, the others that were uh, crucified with Jesus, they had their legs broken to kind of hasten their death. Well, before releasing the body, Pilate summoned the centurion in charge to receive the official report. And again, this would have been the same, and this is what Mark gives us, this, this detail. This would have been the same centurion who had earlier confessed regarding Christ that he truly, this man, was the Son of God. Well, once Pilate heard that Jesus was dead, he then permitted Joseph to take his body. Now, this is an important piece of information in the account of Jesus' death and burial. Because many, even you hear it sometimes today, many deny the fact of the resurrection by saying that Jesus wasn't really dead. right? That he only had passed out or he, he swooned. But when we consider all that he went through, the, the physical and the verbal abuse, the scourging, the fact that he barely had enough energy and he, he uh, needed help to carry the cross, the help of Simon of Cyrene, that he had endured this horrible, excruciating pain of crucifixion, and he hung on the cross for at least six hours or more, and he also felt the burden of the sins of the world upon his shoulders, and the just wrath and curse of God being poured out upon him for our sins. And then with a spear thrust in his side, Jesus was truly dead. And Jesus' death is confirmed by the official stamp of the Roman Empire. Because the centurion, who had probably seen hundreds, if not thousands of men die on crosses, well, he would have been an expert to know when someone was dead. When the governor, Caesar's representative in the region, requested an official report, certainly the centurion wouldn't jeopardize his job or his life by lying. 
the centurion's word was basically the same as the issuance of a death certificate. Stamped and approved by the government authorities, Jesus was truly dead. Indeed, not only had the cords of death surrounded him, but they had strangled him and taken his life from him. And so confirming Jesus' death, Pilate then commanded the centurion to give the body to Joseph. And again, as there there were no time to lose because of the approaching Sabbath, Joseph, and, and again, John tells us, had the help of Nicodemus, another secret disciple. Uh, they took the body of Jesus down from the cross. They wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid his body in a new tomb that belonged to Joseph. This is a brand new tomb, one in which no other body had yet been laid. And likely it was intended for, for either Joseph's own burial at some point or someone in his family. And this tomb wasn't a shallow grave covered over with stones, as was often the case. No, it was actually cut out from the rock, likely the side of the hill or, or a mountain. Well, this kind of tomb would have been a great luxury. Indeed, Matthew mentions... Uh, mentions this for a very specific reason and purpose. Even as he does one little detail about Joseph that we haven't mentioned yet. See, all the other gospel writers recorded descriptions of Joseph's faith and his character. But other than simply saying Joseph had become a disciple of Jesus, the only other thing that Matthew tells us about Joseph in verse 57 is that he was a rich man. Now, why is this detail important enough for Matthew to record it? Right? Why, what's the difference? Why, why does it matter whether Joseph was rich or poor? Well, as Matthew has emphasized throughout his gospel account, it was in order to show that Jesus came in fulfillment of the scriptures. And the particular scripture fulfilled here in relation to Jesus' place of burial is Isaiah 53, 9, of the the passage regarding the suffering servant of the Lord, as we've referenced over the last several weeks. The prophet says there in verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so Jesus, though unjustly convicted and condemned as a wicked criminal, dying the death of a criminal, he was ultimately at his death, was buried with the rich, demonstrating God's approval. He truly was a perfect and just man, even the Son of God. And so after placing the body of Jesus in the tomb, Joseph and Nicodemus rolled a great stone to cover the entrance of the tomb to keep out grave robbers and animals from from getting in. But Joseph and Nicodemus weren't alone in the cemetery. Verse 61, Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting up opposite the tomb. Again, once once again we have the mention of these faithful women who had served Jesus throughout his ministry all the way back from when they were in Galilee. And unlike the twelve who had scattered, these faithful women stayed with Jesus to the bitter end. 
They were there, witnesses to his death as he hung on the cross. They stand, they stand, they stood at a distance from the cross, and they now witness his burial in the place where he was laid. This too is an important detail that's worthy of mention. For the presence of these faithful women here at the burial of Jesus will be a critical testimony of the coming resurrection and of the, the truth of the resurrection. Because one of the objections raised about the resurrection is that the women who arrived at the tomb early on the first day of the week, they went to the wrong tomb. Right? They just they went to the wrong tomb. They didn't know where he was buried. But we have this detail mentioned here because they knew exactly where that tomb was. There would be no mistake or error because they had seen with their own eyes where the body of Jesus had been laid. And Lord willing, next week we'll consider the culmination of the, these faithful women and their witness and how the Lord in extraordinary times even empowers the unexpected to proclaim the glory of Christ. But until that time... Matthew has one other detail that the other gospel writers don't mention. Again, a detail that will further solidify the hard hearts of the religious of the religious leaders as well as confirm the truth of the resurrection. Verse 62, on the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Well, note first how these religious leaders who claimed to strictly hold to the law and the traditions of the elders, how they especially took exception to the Sabbath, showing forth their hypocrisy. See, they go to Pilate early the next morning, which would have been the Sabbath day, and they would have sought these guards for the tomb. And this would have been, according to their tradition, this would have been a kind of work. You wouldn't take your business to the magistrate on the Sabbath day. And certainly it wasn't a necessity. But friends, hypocrites don't concern themselves with their own violations of the law. They're only concerned with others' violation of the law. And secondly, as if it wasn't enough to be there, mocking Jesus as he hung on the cross and witnessing his death for themselves. They request a guard because they fear that Jesus' disciples might come and steal the body away. Well, they could have easily looked around and where were his disciples? They weren't anywhere to be seen. The disciples were still in a state of shock to even consider such a thing. And so truly this was not necessary. But thirdly, it's interesting that they reveal that they actually listened to Jesus. Right? Even though Jesus had, had often couched in parables and, image, and, and imagery and how he spoke more clearly to his disciples, but generally with the crowd, he spoke in parables and he used kind of uh, uh, poetic language. And yet they understood this clearly, that Jesus claimed that he would rise from the dead after three days. 
again, this was something that his disciples struggled to grasp. Right? Each time Jesus made the prediction of his coming suffering and death, he always said, but I'm going to be to rise from the dead on the third day. And they just like, what? They didn't understand what he was talking about. They just got hung up on the fact that he was going to be put to death. And yet the Pharisees knew this. But they certainly didn't believe it. But it's almost, well, we better cover our bases. (laughs) He said this, we better make sure. And so that's why they wanted the guards posted. And so Pilate consents to the request. And he, he sends the guard to watch over the grave... And they even set a seal upon the grave. And this would have been a, a cord of some kind covered with mat, wax or clay. And it would have had an official stamp. Maybe it would have been a Pilate's official stamp. And this, again, would have assured that no one was going to retrieve the body of Jesus without it being known. right? Because even if you knocked out the guards, you're still going to have that cracked seal but certainly with the guards, no one was going to enter in to that tomb and steal the body. But you see the irony in all this, and again, and we'll see this more clearly next week, is that everything these hypocritical and hard-hearted religious leaders put in place, everything they did to try to make sure the body of Jesus isn't stolen away, will only end up actually confirming the truth and the miracle of the resurrection. So that even in his death, Jesus still foiled their plot and their plans. So brothers and sisters, what truths then do we glean from this passage before us? Well, First, we must remember, as with the disciples that things don't always turn out based on our plans and hopes and dreams. But certainly when God has given us a promise, that even in the midst of doubts and disillusionment, we may hold fast, we must hold fast to our faith anyway, even as Joseph did. Seeking our courage, not from within ourselves, as we will ultimately cave into fear but we must find our strength and courage in the cross of Christ. In Christ who died for our sins and suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. And secondly, we must always then be ready and equipped to make a public stand despite the shame of the cross. That we must confess Christ even though it may bring a ridicule and scorn from others, even though it may uh, bring uh, disrupt relationships, even though it may bring persecution upon us, we must confess Christ if we believe in Him. We overcome our fear, all the fear of men. We overcome by praying for boldness and keeping our eyes fixed not on the praise of men, but keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And finally, we understand that this isn't the end. Jesus, dead and buried. And again, we'll see this, Lord willing, next week. 
But though Jesus was dead and buried, we know that He now lives. He was crucified, dead, and buried, but was also raised again to claim the victory over sin and death once and for all. And by the power of His Spirit, He continues to apply the benefits of that victory, even now today, to all those who would humbly come before Him, who would turn away from their sins and trust in Him, even publicly confessing His name. All this to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks, Father, for the great truth of Your Word and the reminders that were given here, the challenge to, to keep trusting in You, even when things are looking frightening and scary all around us, when the plans that we make don't work out as we thought they would. Let us look to You and trust Your plan and Your purpose as You would lead and guide us. And especially we pray, Lord, that You would give us great boldness that if we believe in Christ, that we would not be ashamed of the Gospel, that we would not be ashamed of the cross, because in the cross is where we have life and forgiveness and peace with You and freedom from eternal condemnation and death. Lord, how could we possibly be quiet and so we pray that you would give us boldness especially in our day and age when there's such hostility toward you and toward your word and toward your people give us boldness to speak the truth and that through our witness that there would be many hearts that would turn to you because of that boldness and we pray that this would be done for your glory not for our praise And so, Father, we praise You and thank You for these things. And as we look forward to the resurrection, the account of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which even now we know has been accomplished and gives us great hope of one day being raised again in glory, where we'll enter into Your glorious presence forever and ever and ever. All to the praise and glory of your holy name. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.